I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear a Dharma talk I gave at Marin Sangha on March 19, 2017. This talk is entitled, No Doubt, Fierce Compassion and Discerning Wisdom. This talk is a follow-up to the Dharma talk I gave on fearlessness, and it further fleshes out how to be able to cultivate and enact the qualities that one needs to be courageous and wise and open-hearted in the face of life's difficulties. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of compassion is from Thupten Jimpa. He was the longtime translator of the Dalai Lama, and he's a professor at McGill University, an incredible author also. And he describes compassion as the possibility of responding to suffering with understanding, patience, and kindness, rather than fear and repulsion. He says that compassion lets us open ourselves to the reality of suffering and seek its alleviation. It connects the feeling of empathy to acts of kindness, generosity, and other expressions of altruistic tendencies. It is a readiness to help or wanting to do something about another person's situation. I think that's a really clear definition of compassion, don't you think? Mm -hmm. And very thorough. He has a book um, called uh, Fearless Heart, which is a book specifically on compassion practices from the Lojong method in Tibetan Buddhism. I highly recommend this book. So from his definition, we can see that though compassion begins with empathic knowing of pain, it is not empathy. For compassion moves very quickly away from the feeling of pain toward a strong impulse to alleviate pain. Now, Roshi Joan Halifax, somebody else who has written a tremendous amount about compassion, she says that mostly compassion is wise and attentive wisdom characterized by a fearlessness which is grounded in moral sensitivity and character. Roshi Joan is widely known for popularizing the term fierce compassion. So what is fierce compassion? John Moransky says, fierce compassion, like strong anger, is an intense motivation to confront causes of harm in people and society. So that's a very basic definition of it. So unlike ordinary anger, fierce compassion arises from cutting through the delusion that ignorance equals inner badness. So according to Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology, basic goodness and altruism is an inherent quality of all human beings. In fact, we actually have a tremendous amount of clinical research on rats, primates, infants, and toddlers that tells us this is true. Should I tell you about my favorite study of altruism in rats. I love this study. This is from 2013. So they built this container with two compartments. One compartment had a pool of water in it, and the other one was dry. 
So they would put one rat in the dry compartment. Now the dry compartment also had a little chute. And the chute delivered a treat. A, a treat rats love. I'm not sure what the treat was, but I know that rats love this treat. Simultaneously, the researchers would release a treat to the point where the rat could see it and get it, and also put another rat in the pool of water. Now, rats don't like water. Some rats really don't like water, and they get extremely distressed when they hit the water. So the rat in the dry compartment can see the distressed rat in the water, and there is a way that the rat can actually rescue the wet rat. You would think the rat would go for the treat, but no. As soon as they see a distressed rat, they're right in, they rescue the rat, they bring the rat into the dry compartment, then they go get the treat and share it with the other rat. So altruism is our basic nature. Now another component of fierce compassion and skillful compassionate response is having the courage to see the impermanence of oneself and one's conditions without denial or distraction, and then show up no matter how hard it is for the inevitable suffering caused by the human ingrained habit of assuming permanence and sameness. Now we talked about this last week, right? Impermanence, very big part of recognizing and being fearless so fierce compassion is a way to be able to alleviate our own suffering as well as other people's suffering when they are having trouble with impermanence. Now fierce compassion fights injustice by simultaneously upholding the basic goodness and humanness of all involved parties in any conflict and confronting that which impedes wisdom in compassion in those who cause harm. Now, some people may fight injustice driven by their anger. And that choice will probably inflame the situation, increase anger, violence, and reactivity in ourselves and others. What fierce compassion does is it names ignorance wherever it is, in whatever ways it's arising, without attacking, defaming, or denigrating the wrongdoer. So we have wrong action, we have wrong thoughts, we have wrong perception, we have wrong view, right? We have wrong intention. And yet we have a human being who may be embodying that and engaging in it, who at their core is basically good. So fierce compassion recognizes this clearly. When situations call for it, fierce compassion may appear direct, forceful, even angry. But inside, the person who's enacting fierce compassion is motivated by compassion for others and externally expressed that kind of compassion with a commitment to bestowing benefit rather than harm. John Moransky likes to say that we need to connect with the humanity in everyone, their dignity, 
their potential. Beyond everyone's limiting thoughts of them. You can see how powerful this might be right now with people who either disagree with you or people who are doing things that you don't agree with. If we can do this, we can actually challenge a person's harmful thoughts and actions, not just on behalf of others who are harmed, but also on behalf of that person's humanity. And John Moransky continues and says, in this way, rather than confronting some people in order to uphold other people, we can learn to uphold what needs to be supported in each person. And what that is, is their humanity. Even if they are experiencing ignorance, greed, and delusion, they still have some quality of humanity. Fierce compassion recognizes that humanity. And it also recognizes that this is not disconnected to the person who's perceiving the injustice, because everything arises interdependently. So we can't just turn our back, or we can't just say, you're an idiot. We can't do that if we're practicing fierce compassion. Because our goal is to enliven and awaken all beings and alleviate suffering. And there's a definite sort of fierceness about that. We have to be warriors for wisdom and compassion in this world. So Roshi Joan has some very good advice for practicing fierce compassion. She says, Practice patience with yourself and others, and bear all circumstances with adversity. Try to be more yes than no. Do not seek the easy solution, but be willing to stand in the mess with fierce compassion. That's so important, don't you think? Having the willingness to stand firmly in the mess of life. I think that's what most of our Buddhist training is really for. And in order to do that, we have to be fiercely compassionate toward ourselves and toward others because the mess is very messy and it doesn't feel good. And we don't have to make it feel good, by the way, really. You do not have to deliver an antidote for everything. That's another piece of fierce compassion, giving up antidotes. And you can recognize clearly, wisely, but you don't have to make it feel better. Try that sometime. It's actually very liberating. Roshi Joan also advises to practice daily mindfulness and bring forward brilliant, loving energy. I love that. Uphold your capacity for wisdom. Maintain your stability. And finally, she says, be a servant to all beings. So obviously, fierce compassion has a quality of humility. How else can you be a servant of awakening to all beings if we can't be humble about our own messiness? And it's okay to have 
the desire, the aspiration to awaken oneself and all beings and still recognize how messy we actually are as human beings. So fierce compassion is a very big part of fearlessness. Interestingly, I had a couple of people communicate with me about last week's talk on fearlessness with the same question. It was a very interesting question. And at some point last week, I recall saying that I might talk about this a little bit. One of these responses to the talk I gave was a curiosity about the relationship between doubt and discernment. A couple of people told me that when they calmly, clearly see things as they are, so they have some insight come, right? It's like, wow, that's amazing. Often, the very next thing that comes is a wave of doubting what was known and its validity. Now, haven't we all had the experience, this just infuriating back and forth between mental clarity and then this doubtful confusion? Have you all experienced this? I know I have. It's like the light bulb goes off, and the next minute you're like, really? Are you sure? So... So I, I thought this was a very, very good topic for me to talk about, especially along with fierce compassion, because if you're not going to have doubt, if you're really not going to get lost in the hindrance of doubt, fierce compassion is a very good method for that. But also really being able to understand the difference between Skepticism and discerning, I think, is a very, very, very good place to do some work here. So, discerning wisdom is not the same thing as mental clarity. You can be very clear, but not really be discerning much at the same time. You can just be clear. In fact, uh, certain Vajrayana schools, mental clarity is actually a hindrance to recognizing the nature of mind because it can be very, very attracting and you can get lost in this intense mental clarity. And also, inquiring is not the same thing as the sort of doubt-driven, anxious, or ruminative thoughts that I think these people were asking me about. I'm going to discuss doubt. The Buddha talked about doubt a lot. And the Buddha named it as one of the five hindrances that can arise in the mind and mess up your meditation. And it can also arise in your mind even when you're not meditating, frankly. So the Buddha had a lot to say about doubt. And you know, the truth is, doubts, great emotional disquiet, clouds judgment, and limits judicious, timely action. It really gets in the way of our capacity to be skillful in the world. And the texts actually say that one whose heart is overwhelmed by doubt will often end up doing what one should, what should not be done and neglecting what should be done. That sounds so much like doubt, doesn't it? You waste all this time in your doubting thoughts you end up not doing the things you probably should do. When this happens, 
contentment is impeded. So in the text, there are two similes that are featured in the suttas that really beautifully describe skeptical doubt. And I really like these similes because they're very juicy, so you can really get it. So the first one is a simile on the hindrance of doubt, and it goes like this. There's a traveler in the desert, and the traveler is uncertain whether robbers are there or not. And what he does is he just produces over and over and over in his mind a state of wavering and vacillation about traveling through the desert because he's just his mind is lost in causing this kind of fearfulness that there are going to be robbers there. And honestly, he ends up in decisiveness and in a constant state of anxiety. In fact, at the mere sound of a twig or a bird, he probably ends up becoming anxious and fearful. And inside his mind, every time he hears something, he thinks, robbers have come. So what he ends up doing is he goes a few steps, and then out of fear, he stops. And then he continues in this manner, going a few steps and stopping. Sometimes he might even backtrack a little bit because he's continually creating robbers where there probably are none. He might even turn back. And thus he creates in himself an obstacle for reaching what the suttas call the safe ground of sanctity. In this way, skeptical doubt is like traveling in a desert. Isn't this a great simile? I know this happens for me a lot. How about the rest of you? Oh, no, yes. The second simile is on the abandonment of doubt. How, once we recognize that we are traveling through our lives with this kind of continual anxiety and questioning, how do we abandon this? So here's the second simile. So there's a strong woman who, with her luggage in hand, and by the way, she's also well-armed, she travels through a wilderness. And if there are any robbers, when they see her from afar, they immediately take flight. Why? because she's a strong woman with her luggage in her hand and she's well-armed. And she's got a bunch of people around her who also are equally strong and well-armed. So the robbers, if they see her, they just run away. So crossing safely the wilderness and reaching a place of safety, she rejoices in her safe arrival. Now similarly, Seeing that skeptical doubt is a cause of great harm helps one give up doubt. So the Buddha actually compared the abandonment of skeptical doubt to reaching a place of safety. And if you recall, in the suttas we discussed last week, fearlessness and intrepidity actually led to safety. So doubt 
as a hindrance calls up a continual sense of fearfulness about things that they're basically there's no reason to be fearful. Abandonment of doubt means that there is a sense of grounding, of landing in your experience. And fierce compassion is a very powerful mechanism to land in your experience without any doubt. Even if you're not sure about a decision, fierce compassion can give you the capacity to be able to go for the decision because you've probably deliberated enough to just go and see what happens with an attitude of open-heartedness and curiosity and a willingness to show up for yourself should you find that the decision led to some form of suffering. That's what being human is about, you know? Making mistakes and learning. Doubt is a way for people to quote-unquote inoculate themselves from making mistakes. It never works. Because the mistake they think they're making is the rumination and the anxious narratives that they are following. That's the biggest mistake. Now, there is another hindrance form of doubt, which is not mentioned in the suttas as a specific form of doubt. But I think this is a very common form of doubt. I actually call it reified doubt. So reified doubt sounds like this. It's that narrative in your head that's saying, nothing ever works out for me, I can never do anything right, life hates me. Anybody ever heard of that? That is a reification of an identity as a person who never gets anything right and for whom life never works. And I gotta tell you, there is nothing true about any of that. These thoughts are a manifestation of what I have termed negative self-cherishing. If you are interested in the clinical distillation of all of this, I published a chapter back in November in a big handbook of mindfulness. You can find it on my website for free. You can download it from academia.edu. There's a link there. And you can read about self-cherishing and how to cut through it. But negative self-cherishing is putting oneself in the middle of all bad things that happen because the mind is fixated on the idea that I am bad. So this, is, this reified doubt is just a deeply distorted core belief about oneself in the world. And the traveler who's traveling in the desert with that anxious narrative going is probably suffering from reified doubt because when he set out on his journey, his first thought probably was, well, chances are I won't make it because everything is hard for me. Or robbers always show up for me or I don't deserve to get to my destination. And much like last week when we discussed uncertainty, reified doubt is actually not doubt. It's nothing more than a distorted narrative of the surety of doom and failure. But it feels like doubt. 
What do we do about doubt? How do we walk through the world with no doubt? You have to look to the support of discernment. Because discernment is the antidote, particularly for reified doubt, but all doubt in general, including skeptical doubt. Now, discernment requires mental clarity, but discernment is much more than mental clarity. Discernment is the capacity to recognize the difference between judgments, opinions, and reasoned deductions. And I don't think that actually this is talked about enough in Buddhist circles. Because I think this is a very, very good way to know whether or not you have insight arising or you're just lost in your opinions and judgments about things. So we have to develop the muscle of discernment, particularly discerning whether or not right now I'm lost in some fixation I have on a belief or on some opinion that I hold strongly, whether it's right or wrong, by the way, opinions are opinions, or whether I have reasoned through my thoughts enough to have a gut sense of whether or not the conclusion I have come to actually makes sense. Not just in my own mind, but maybe outside of my own mind. In fact, discernment cannot arise in a mind clouded by reactivity. And judgments and opinions generally arise from reactivity. Insight does not. Insight arises in responsiveness when you're in relationship to things. Again, fierce compassion. You have to be in relationship to experience in order to have insight arise. Even if it's your own internal experience, if you are being reactive to external or internal causes and conditions, insight will not arise. Reactivity only leads to thoughts, feelings, and actions that are based in false assumptions and thoughtless impulses. And I think most judgments and opinions are based in false assumptions and thoughtless impulses. Also, discernment is not the same thing as non-judgmentality, that wonderful word everybody loves to put in their definition of what is mindfulness, non-judgmental, moment-to-moment awareness. You know, discernment requires circumspection, deliberation, and heedfulness. Non-judgmentality is just an open stance without penetration. That's not discernment. There is no discernment in non-judgmentality. Now, the Buddha offered three ways one can develop discernment and aim the mind toward awakening. He said, one should listen, contemplate, and purify the mind's perceptive lens through meditation practice. So to enact and expand the skill of discernment, the Buddha encouraged practitioners to associate with people of integrity, listen to the Dharma, 
apply attention to what has been shared, and then to diligently practice the dharna. This was his method, basically, for cultivating discerning mind. Be in the sangha of integrous people. Listen to the teachings. Attend to the teachings. That means don't just non-judgmentally receive the teachings. Buddha, you know, the Buddha was not into that, really. He, he really was into discourse. He was into doing what you can do to be able to actually rationally deduce whether or not something is true or not true. And that, for him, was the practice of the Dharma. (coughs) Many times the Buddha taught that discernment leads to contentment through the practice of life-affirming, non-harming, meritorious acts of generosity, virtue, and universal goodwill. So I think now you can start to see how fierce compassion and discernment uh, are starting to come on the same path here. Because meritorious acts, they exercise the muscle of discernment because they show us with great clarity the value and importance of what we input into our minds and bodies and what we output in the world. So discernment forces us to deliberate very, very carefully and apply appropriate heedfulness so our actions arise from and reflect wisdom and compassion. And frankly, this is critical for all action has consequences for ourselves and others. So discernment is that beginning tool here for being able to actually have the knowledge of the ramifications of our actions. Fierce compassion is all about acting wisely and knowing the ramifications of one's actions. And so is discernment. And of course, actions are very powerful. And because they are, we need to be heedful of what we do, why we do it, and to contemplate the results of what we do as best we can. You know, right view, right intention, these are the engines of discernment. And discernment is the oil for awakening. Most particularly, the kind of awakening which is known in the Buddhist texts of all three yanas and all Buddhist schools as discerning wisdom. So discernment is the baby step on the path of discerning wisdom. This is where we're going as Buddhist practitioners. And fierce compassion and discerning wisdom are like, similarly, you know, the two wings of enlightenment, wisdom and compassion. Fierce compassion, discerning wisdom. This is the jet engine of enlightenment. Okay, we're not talking a bird here. We're talking... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fastest jet you can think of, that's what we're talking about. So let's find out about discerning wisdom. One of my favorite teachers... Trangu Rinpoche, he says about discerning wisdom, when the mind is purified, 
then you have developed the wisdom that realizes all things as they are. This is discerning wisdom. So that's his definition of discerning wisdom. Purified mind and a wisdom that recognizes all things as they are. And of course, the Buddha used the term suchness for this. The Buddha often mentioned contemplative practice as a foundational way to allow discernment to evolve into discerning wisdom. That evolution is critical for effortlessly enacting fierce compassion in the world. And this is due to the fact that discerning wisdom is a basic component of awakening. You cannot have awakening without discerning wisdom. So when it comes to the kind of discerning wisdom that fuels fierce compassion, this is best expressed through the cultivation of what is known as unfabricated well-being. And by the way, unfabricated well-being sounds Dzogchen, doesn't it? But actually, this is from the polytexts. On the path of awakening, fierce compassion can inspire and guide us to unconditioned or unfabricated well-being by engaging in actions which produce joy and cause no harm. This is a very basic way to get yourself on the path to unfabricated well-being. Acts which produce joy and cause no harm usually include acts of generosity, virtue, and the development of universal goodwill. But how else do we develop discerning wisdom? Well, according to the texts, the most important contemplation is to recognize the difference between fabrication and non-elaboration. Now, wakefulness is an integration of resting the mind in phenomenal experience with an intention to cultivate dispassion toward the mind's discursive distorted notions of actuality. And by the way, that is the definition, according to the polytexts, of fabrication. So to make this a little more clear, when you're sitting in meditation and a car goes by, one of two things is going to happen. A very basic aspect of your perceptive awareness is going to experience car going by. You might even get the label car going by, or it might just be very subtle. You just, car goes by, and that's it. You're done. That's non-elaboration. You're sitting in meditation, car goes by, and now you don't just hear the car go by or recognize car going by. But now you're off on a discursive tangent. I hate cars going down my street. I don't understand why I can't have a meditation with that car going by. I cannot possibly concentrate without silence. I need this, I need that. You've fabricated an entire reality around a simple car going by. This is a difference between fabrication and non-elaboration. You know, phenomena arises, and it's of the nature, as the Buddha says, to exist and pass away. 
But the mind, the discursive mind, will hold on to phenomena, its stories of phenomena, based on its own irritation and agitation toward phenomena. That is called fabrication. When we don't do that, that is what is known as non-elaboration. Is this clear? So discerning wisdom has everything to do with whether or not you are engaged, I am engaged, we are all engaged in fabrication about experience, or whether we are actually in experience, fully embodied, fiercely compassionate, and wisely discerning exactly what is occurring. And that is a dynamically responsive state. This is why reactivity and fierce compassion and discernment don't go together. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he says that because the unfabricated neither arises nor passes away, it's always potentially discernible. This is why awakening occurs in the flash of a moment. So what he's referring to here as the unfabricated is the unconditioned, which the Buddha referred to as that which is beyond the coming and going of phenomena, which of course is just the innate luminosity of mind, the capacity of mind to know. Now because discernment is mercurial and unreliable, it has to be trained and developed into the faculty of discerning wisdom. So one can rest in the sublimity of suchness and know things as they actually are. So I figure you probably have some questions or maybe some insights into what I've just offered. And I wanted to leave some time for this. What are some what? Definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yes. Maybe not doubt. Maybe inquiry. Yeah? There is a difference between doubt and inquiry. Inquiry doesn't start with a sense of unsurety. Inquiry starts with a sense of interest, which may lead to unsurety. But it won't be doubt. It will actually be unsurety because something else is becoming clear. I wonder if you could talk about in connection to discerning wisdom, the I'm not even sure if this qualifies as doubt my mind, but the learning to accept the fact that there are the uncertainty of not knowing things, that things are happening the way they're happening, you know, to us in our lives because of factors that we're not aware and may never be aware. You know, don't know mind doesn't mean you don't know. Don't know mind means you know without fixation on the fact that you know. Because you know that knowledge is continually shifting and changing. And so there's a sense of freedom in knowing as much as you know and being not fixated, not clinging tightly to the idea that what you know is everything to know. I know Buddhist teachers use it as, don't know mind. If you don't know, be comfortable with not knowing. I mean, I am very comfortable with, I don't know everything. There's a lot of things I don't know. I'm extremely comfortable with that. I hope 
pretty much everybody can be comfortable with the things that they don't know. But I know if I don't know something, so it's not as though I don't know. I know this sounds like splitting hairs, but the truth is, don't know mind means don't get fixated on the idea that not knowing is a problem. Name it. Because chances are, maybe somebody else knows. Now last week, when I talked about fearlessness, I did talk quite a bit about how our small human minds have some trouble actually knowing the limitlessness of the ramifications of actions. That's something we really can't fully know. But I know I can't fully know that. So it's not no no mind. I actually know without any doubt that I just don't have the capacity to know the full-on ramifications of the things I do. And anybody who thinks they do, frankly, they're deluded. That's some ego delusion that they have. Now that you've heard me say that, is there still a question that I haven't answered in what you said? Because you said several things, and so I want to make sure that I really answered your question. I find a problem because the people I engage with throughout my day are not willing to, they're, they're in this reactivity, which you were talking about before, um, mm -hmm. the reactivity which leads to clouded mind and inability to think clearly because they feel so um, controlling that they have to know every piece of everything that works in their life so that they won't get any surprises. Yeah, so that's actually a job for fierce compassion. Discerning wisdom will tell you that these beings are suffering. Once you have discerned for yourself, okay, these people are suffering because, for instance, as you said, they have some deluded notion that they can actually be happier and safer in the world if they have, have the idea that they're in control of everything. Right? Okay. So then fierce compassion would say to you, that's very human. Most people actually think this way. And then discerning wisdom would come in and say to you, but the Dharma has very clearly shown you that there is no ground. It's a groundless ground. There's nothing to hold on to. And that when people hear this, they're scared to death. So then fierce compassion comes in and says, can you say something to alleviate suffering that won't scare someone to death? Now you can go to somebody with your opinions about the Dharma and you can say, what the hell is wrong with you? Smack like a moonstruck. Smack, smack. Snap, snap, right? You can do this. And that would be ferocious. It would not be fierce compassion, <laughs> nor would it be discerning wisdom. I love your question so much. It's a beautiful dharmic question, because what it boils down to is that the problem is not in them. Really, the problem is in the dharma practitioner, in how to be able to 
enact bodhicitta in the world, which is to awaken for the benefit of all other beings. Because that's a moment where you really do need to discern for yourself. How can I, as I said, I think in the meditation, how would the Buddha be practicing right now? If you can imagine that, do it. The Dharma practitioner understands the frame of mentally generated suffering, right? And you can see it in other people. But that's not what you say to them. You don't directly point it out that way for someone who doesn't have the frame. You find a frame that actually speaks to them and allows them to have that insight arise in them. And that's fierce compassion. So what I hope is that there was some clarity tonight for you about how fierce compassion and discerning wisdom are a pair. And they really work well together. And they are the next stage up from just wisdom and compassion. Not that wisdom and compassion aren't amazing. They are totally amazing. On the other hand, if you are going for an awakening, why not dip your toe in the river of fierce compassion and discerning wisdom?